0: I know the timing of this video is incredibly unfortunate, and while I want to bring light to as many cases as I can in this video, I need to take a second to talk about what's happening, not only in Minnesota, but around the world. This is George Floyd. This man's life was taken by someone who was so blinded by hate and drunk with power, he couldn't see past the color of George's skin and recognize that at the end of the day, we're all humans. George should still be with us, along with the numerous other black men and women who have been wrongfully attacked and targeted. At the top of the description, you can find various donation links to George's Memorial Fund, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, and various other outlets committed to fighting against the hatred and ignorance staining our world. Over to the right, you can also donate directly to the NAACP if you would like to do that. As a white man in America, I have no idea what it's like to be afraid to leave my house. I have no idea what it feels like to be targeted over something I have no control over. The least I can do is use my platform to spread an idea of unity and justice. I stand with you all, and I always will. No lives matter until black lives matter. Joshua went missing on the 9th of November, 2002 from Collegeville, Minnesota, a small town with just over 3,500 residents in 2018. According to reports online, Josh left a party at Metten Court, located at the north end of St. John's University campus, the night of November 9th around 11pm or midnight. At the time of Josh's disappearance, he was studying political science and he was a junior. His reason for leaving the party was to use the restroom, but after 15 minutes, he hadn't returned. Friends assumed he'd walked back into his on-campus apartment near the middle of campus. The friends did call the apartment later, but when no one picked up, they figured he was asleep. It was later learned that Josh never went back to his apartment. An article published the day before the one-year anniversary where the friends who were with him that night spoke with the Star Tribune stated that Josh was in high spirits the night he went missing. Greg Warden, a close friend, said, The whole walk down, he was in a great mood. Everything seemed normal. Nate Slinkard, another friend, said, in regards to Josh leaving, It's kind of like you don't need to say goodbye. I mean, we were all in college, and you're ready to go home and go to bed. You go. This was in reference to the fact that Josh didn't say anything to anyone before he left. He just left. It's very possible he did stop at the restroom before leaving to head to his apartments, but what isn't known is what took place in the time from him leaving the party at Midder Court to somewhere near the middle of campus where his apartment was. Using Google Maps, we can see from Mettencourt to the bookstore, which is around the middle of the campus, is just an eight-minute walk. The morning following this party, the 10th, which was a Sunday, no one had heard anything from Josh. Still, while worry began to rise, no one reported him missing. Even as the afternoon came and Josh didn't show up to a school function, the police were still not called. I'm sure they may have thought he was just simply hungover and sleeping it off, but many reports say that while friends weren't sure how much he drank that night, they were certain he wasn't intoxicated. At least, not to the point of being inhibited. Finally, as night fell on campus, Josh was reported missing, and his parents were notified. Immediately, people began looking into other, very similar cases that were taking place around this time. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Josh was the fourth young person to go missing since the 30th of October in 2002 in Minnesota and Wisconsin. At the time of the article, 2002, police said they were aware of the similarities and they were looking into them all possibly being connected. As of 2003, however, they've stated they do not believe them to be connected in any way. Friends and family have said numerous times that there was no way Josh left on his own free will. They said it would have been completely out of character. Not only that, but Josh's car was found on campus the day he'd gone missing. If he'd wanted to leave, he would have taken his car to make it much further than he could have. You have to remember, this was around midnight in November. It would have been freezing out, possibly below freezing. A statement from Josh's mother and father echoed this sentiment, saying, he was without his car, glasses, or a coat warm enough for the weather. The full statement reads, We would greatly appreciate your help in finding our son. Josh has been missing from the campus of St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, since November 9, 2002. He was last seen leaving a dorm room three minutes walking distance from his dorm and never made it. He has not been seen since. Josh did not leave on his own free will. He was without his car, glasses, or a coat warm enough for the weather. None of his credit cards have been used, and there has been no contact with any friends or family members since that day. Please be on the lookout for Josh. Please let us know if you see him, or if you know anything related to his disappearance, which might help us find him. So, if you do believe you have anything that can help police in this investigation, don't hesitate to report it. You can contact the Stearns County Sheriff's Office at these two numbers, you can call the Wright County Sheriff's Office at this number, and finally you can call the BAC tip line at this number. Rachel worked at a liquor store in Pine River, Minnesota at the time of her disappearance. From what I've seen, Tuesday, February 27th, 2001, was no different than any other night. Rachel closed up the store and presumably was planning to head home. Though, this Tuesday night, she never made it. That night, around 10.30, the family noted that she should have been home by then. However, they didn't think that much into it. From an article just a few days after her abduction, states that the family assumed she'd gone out with some friends. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case. At 1.30 in the morning, now Wednesday, the police called Rachel's family to inform them that she'd gone missing. Her car was found outside the liquor store, still running 30 minutes before. Someone had taken her from the parking lot. A 2001 article published by the Star Tribune stated, The back door of the store was open and Anthony's coat, purse, and cigarettes were on a chair behind the sales counter. There was no sign of Anthony. Investigators said Wednesday that they suspect foul play and asked for the public's help in finding her. The article also details the search, saying police from Pine River were joined by more than 50 officers from the Cass County Sheriff's Office and by local firefighters in the search Wednesday. A half dozen agents from the state BCA looked for clues inside the liquor store. A state patrol helicopter searched the area in the dark of Wednesday morning, too, but that didn't do us any good. It goes on to say many roads were searched all through town, but still, nothing came up. More and more searches were conducted for the following days, but eventually, they stopped. It wouldn't be until the 15th of April, 2001, just over a month since Rachel had gone missing, that her body was discovered. The article states, The body of a woman found in a roadside ravine near Breezy Point was that of liquor store clerk Rachel Anthony, authorities said Saturday. The article says that the official COD was asphyxiation, and unfortunately, they did not name any suspects at the time. They did state in the same article that security cameras were set up, but they were unfortunately not working at the time. Had they have been, it's possible the person who abducted her would have been identified. An even more disturbing piece to this puzzle is the fact that many believe Rachel saw her attacker and possibly interacted with him beforehand. From the same article, authorities still want to talk to a person who made a purchase at the store shortly before it closed at 10 p.m. February 27th. From what I've seen online, no one has ever been mentioned as a suspect. In 2003, an article was published by the Star Tribune detailing that even after almost three years, the police were no closer to getting answers in the murder of Rachel Anthony. Sheriff Fisher even said the information was coming out, but the frequency of it had drastically slowed with time. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case even now, some 19 years later. An article from 2014 says that while police have been successful in ruling out numerous suspects, nothing has come out that can help them pin down a suspect and make an arrest. Just like the year it happened, police are again asking for anyone with information to come forward and help in this case. In that same 2014 article, there is a mention of a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction, so again, if you know something, speak up. You can submit any information to the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension at this number, or you can email them here. Finally, you can call the Cass County Sheriff's Office at either one of the numbers you see right here. Corinne's story begins on the 1st of June, 1992. She was just 5 years old at the time. The last time she was seen was 7.30pm when she left her home to go play at or near Skyline Park, which was not very far from her home in Grove Heights. From an article just 5 days after her disappearance, it is noted that Corinne went to the park to play with a friend of the family, Robert Guevara. Robert had an extensive record of alcohol abuse and also abusing Corinne sexually. At the time of this, Corinne's mother simply stated that she'd forgotten that Robert had done these things to her in the past. The article also goes on to note that Robert had been drinking and was likely intoxicated at this time. According to the Charlie Project, she was only gone for five minutes before her two older brothers went to go get her and bring her home. The article we mentioned just a second ago says differently. A half hour later, Corinne's brothers begin looking for her. When they made it to the park, however, Corinne was nowhere to be seen. The boys searched for two hours, trying to find Corinne, but their efforts seemed fruitless. The police were called around 9.30. That same article gives a very solid timeline of events beginning with the night that she was taken, which was Monday. Tuesday, police made the statement that they believe a stranger abducted Corinne and were looking into reports of a man in a brown van that was seen talking with her the night she was taken. Robert was also kept under very close watch, and as the article says, Guevara borrows his girlfriend's car ostensibly to move boxes from their mobile home to a storage locker. The next day, Wednesday, police speak with Robert and take in his blue van to be searched. They also took the time to search his home, noting that they'd taken several things, although it isn't said what. Thursday, police interview neighbors and discover there is blood in the back of Robert's van. Friday, just after 2 in the morning, police search Robert's storage locker at his workplace and find a bloody dress and girls' panties. Both are believed to belong to Corinne. Robert was arrested around 7.15 the same day. Now, we talk a lot about injustice on this channel, but this case has reached a new high. The evidence was stacked against Robert, and I personally have no issue stating that this man was responsible because the evidence is there. Aside from the clothing found, some posts online say that Corinne's blood and Robert's semen were found on the shower curtain of his home when the search was conducted. Of course, Robert was taken to trial, but at the time of this case, 1992, Minnesota did not allow full usage of DNA in court, and so Robert was acquitted on all charges, including rape, murder, and kidnapping. It should also be noted that without Corinne's body ever being found, it was nearly impossible to convict him. There is next to nothing on him online, so it seems he'd stayed under the radar since this time, so I hope and pray that an attack like the one on Corinne was never carried out by him again. The general consensus is that Corinne's body was dumped in the Pine Bend landfill, which, after all these years, seems incredibly unlikely to be found. Unless Robert comes forward with a confession, this case is unsolved. Thank you everyone for taking some time out of your day, night, or afternoon to listen to these cases and give everyone in this video a little bit of your time. If you would like to support the channel, you can do so by going to the Patreon link or clicking that little join button under the video. It's a dollar a month, it really helps, and you get videos one to two days in advance. If you'd like to donate to the George Floyd Memorial Fund, the link to that is in the top of the description, and there are other links as well to other places that you can donate and support the fight against injustice. You can also donate directly to the NAACP to the right of the video. Thank you again, everyone, for listening, taking some time out of your day for these people, and I just want you to remember to take care of yourself, please take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.